It's really nice to be here, and uh, uh, I'm honored to be able to interview Glenn Sabin, who is one of the more extraordinary humans on Earth, and I don't say that lightly. What he's done hasn't been done before, and um, uh, with CLL in, in a uh, in a such a well chronicled way. So this is a fantastic opportunity for all of us to, to hear from this remarkable gentleman whom uh, I've had the pleasure of calling friend now for over 10 years. And uh, Glenn, uh, welcome. Uh, that was a beautiful introduction. And you are, you know, in the, in the video we all saw, it says seven years. I think you're out 10 or 11 years at this point. Is that correct? 11 years. Okay. Okay. And, and still doing well with the, all the blood tests normal and no signs of this cancer. You are um, about 60 years old, going to turn 60 in uh, uh, 2023 or have already. Uh, how old are you, Glenn, right now? 49 and staying strong. Uh, <laughs> I, I will be 60 in August. Yes. All right. And so you uh, you were diagnosed uh, uh, over 30 something years ago. Is that correct? Is my arithmetic correct? I was 28 so, years old and newly married. All right. And did you feel ill when you were about to be diagnosed? If you look back now, was there anything that could have given you a clue that something was, was off with your health? Or were you a healthy young man? I thought I was healthy and I was absolutely uh, asymptomatic. So it was quite a, quite a shock, even though I had at that point a very large spleen. I was right. just unaware. Tell us about the spleen. So that was one of the things that uh, you had at the time of diagnosis. You had splenomegaly or an enlarged mm -hmm. spleen. And just for some background, with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, a lot of times some of the leukemic cells or many of the leukemic cells are sequestered in the spleen and the spleen will get larger and larger and larger, filling up with these malignant cancerous cells. That can present some problems. And although it doesn't happen in every case of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, it, you were unfortunate enough to have that happen. Tell us a little bit about that and what you were recommended to do at that point. Well, it was quite enlarged. Uh, I think an average spleen weighs about a pound and a half. And I uh, recall that mine was over six pounds. So it was several pounds of, you know, probably hundreds of millions or billions of, uh, leukemic cells. Um, and there was a, a, a danger of the spleen being so large that it could, you know, rupture with, with certain uh, level of impact. So it was recommended at that point to have a splenectomy, to have the spleen removed, not so much to treat the actual underlying disease, but to kind of like debulk the tumor burden, get rid of uh, an area where a lot of these uh, cells were habitating. So besides the enlarged spleen, which was filled up with uh, lymphocytes, malignant lymphocytes, the name of the disease, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, describes the problem, which is an excess of lymphocytes. What were the other signs that alerted your doctors to a problem, made your doctor call your father, etc.? It was mostly a, a slightly elevated white blood count. I went in to uh, get some labs for an annual physical um, 
I did those about a week prior to the actual appointment, which I thought was a good uh, process. And then I was uh, asked to do additional blood draws when I was there for the appointment because of what was seen uh, from the CDC a week earlier. Okay. And so that was, you had an abnormal blood test. Yes. Excess of, of uh, white blood cells, especially lymphocytes. And were the rest of your blood tests normal? All other areas of the blood were, were normal and the white blood cells were only uh, slightly elevated enough to maybe indicate an infection and ultimately rule that out. So you've had a lifelong interest in physical fitness, making sure that your muscles are strong and that, uh, and you have a, a, uh, an interest in weightlifting, which you've pursued all of your life. Would you say that your lifestyle was healthy back then when you were diagnosed? I would say various aspects of my lifestyle I considered um, healthy, especially around fitness and looking back much, much less so as far as nutrition. So there was room to, for improvement in the nutrition area, but the, the physical fitness you had taken care of. Yes. And there's always room for improvement around um, how to deal with stress. You know, although it, at 28 years old, you know, most young men feel pretty invincible at that, at that early point in their lives. So you had just gotten married. Uh, how, how many months had you been married when you were diagnosed? It was uh, almost two years. Two years. Did you have yeah. any children at that point? No. And did this diagnosis change your ideas about having children? Did you uh, and Linda think, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. I might die. That was uh, certainly uh, something that we gave a lot of thought to. Uh, and we also knew that if we had gone through some certain types of uh, treatments, that that would have rendered me sterile and I would have had to have, you know, bank sperm. So that was certainly a, um, a point of a lot of discussion. Okay. Okay. I want to take a, a little bit of a different tack. Um, you named the book N of One. Will you tell the audience what that means in general and what it means for you? Sure. So in, in scientific experiments, uh, the N is the, the number that's next to the N indicates the uh, total participants or subjects in a, a scientific experiment. And typical, you know, experiments in oncology, uh, whether it's more smaller populations in precision medicine up to larger trials can be anywhere from 25 folks to hundreds, if not thousands of people. So, so we would case, say the end in a trial would be maybe 25 or a thousand people. That's a, you know, a large number is, is typical for the N. Yes. In a trial, the number of subjects. And in this case, the N represents myself, you know, a, a study of one. Um, and this is becoming um, more of a popular area of uh, investigation where different folks are diagnosed with different types of situations and specific to malignant disease. 
they may be uh, trying a more personalized approach that doesn't wholly align with maybe a standard of care um, treatment for that particular uh, disease. So you were told by your doctors, and correct me if this is wrong, gosh, we don't know exactly how to treat you to get you to a cure. So off you go and we're gonna put you in a trial, a formal trial, you're gonna be the only subject and uh, this is how we'll, we will manage your case. Is that, is that what happened? Uh, not exactly. And back in 1991, uh, there, there was no real effective therapy for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, unlike today. And back then, it was a, a, a cocktail of various uh, uh, chemotherapy and, and steroids. That's what was available in 91. So that was one choice. A second choice was an experimental a bone marrow transplant. And then there was something brand new called watchful waiting, where you just basically wait and see how the disease kind of progresses or acts, and then you treat it aggressively uh, if and once that, that, that happens. So in terms of N of one and how that connects, uh, the N of one experiment that I went through over the course of decades was more of an informal experiment that I was just conducting uh, myself under even though I had supervision and was consistently being seen in clinic, uh, you know, from my uh, hematologists. So you were doing this study yourself. You didn't sign any papers and enter a study and present yourself to the NCI to actually be admitted and treated with their particular brand of uh, treatment of the treatment of the day. Correct. Although that is a thing and, and that is uh, happening. Uh, this was so long ago and it was, it was kind of rare for someone to take this type of approach, but I knew that uh, two things that I knew was uh, essential. One was keeping in close touch with my uh, medical team to let them know what I was doing. Uh, and then two, collecting all the data, as much data as possible, all on the way so I could chronicle uh, the course of disease. With, with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, there's a beautiful marker. It's the lymphocyte count, which is reflected in the total white blood cell count. And this can be measured with a simple blood test, which is uh, basically very inexpensive. Uh, depending uh, on the day and the, the laboratory could be anywhere from $3 to $25 for this test. So are these, uh, were these the data that you were collecting and were you monitoring how you were doing yourself and were you making adjustments to your various lifestyle interventions based on those, on that yeah. feedback? I mean, the, the two tests that you're, that you're mentioning is, is a CBC and a a CMP, a comprehensive metabolic profile. And those are the two tests that are standard of care that you're going to have those um, labs drawn during each, you know, hematology appointment. So I certainly had those done consistently and I would often have them done even in between appointments. Uh, so looking at the, you know, absolute lymphocyte count, white blood count, and then everything on the, on the red blood side, you know, hematocrit, hemoglobin, 
red blood cells just to see if I was heading into more of a, a anemic state, which is also something to pay attention to with, uh, you know, with CLL. Uh, and then so it sounds like you had to talk your doctors into letting you take blood tests more often than they might have done otherwise. Is that, is that true? They were pretty flexible uh, with me, especially at times when I was really, uh, when I was really sick. And, and so that they could justify that for, uh, you know, as clinically indicated, certainly at those points, but I never minded uh, paying out of pocket because as you mentioned, they're very inexpensive tests, unless you have them done through a hospital, that's going to cost you 10 times as much to have those same tests done in a hospital, including a vitamin D test, which I would have run a couple times a day, as opposed to just getting a prescription and going to, let's say, a lab corp or a quest to have it done, or within a community oncology clinic. So that's just one of the things that I've noticed in my practice is that a lot of times patients feel that they're constrained by the schedule of testing that their physicians have recommended. And that's not, you know, the physician has the right and will have a very good reason for recommending a certain schedule, but one can go outside of that schedule if one is willing to perhaps pay for the test if the insurance won't cover it. And sometimes that is important if you need to have feedback on how you're doing. For instance, if you are trying to make an impact on a particular disease process, you must, you must have feedback as to how well your intervention is, is, uh, is working. So, so I think that that was, you know, one of the most interesting parts of your journey. I found that really interesting that you were able to negotiate more frequent blood tests than many patients actually are offered. And I think, I wonder if that uh, was, was helpful to you. I think it, it probably was. Um, so you mentioned stress reduction. So people who are listening to this, all of, you know, many of the details are in the book as to, to how you, you arranged your diet and your exercise and your stress reduction and your entire life. It's uh, really quite, uh, I found it uh, an interesting story. And, um, uh, but tell us a little bit about stress reduction. Uh, did you get heavily into a meditation practice, for instance? You know, uh, stress reduction, just like exercise, there's no one size um, fits all model. Um, I, I wish I could uh, sit here and say that, you know, I became, uh, I had an expert, you know, practice of mindfulness-based stress reduction, because I think it's a beautiful thing that certainly does help rewire, you know, aspects of your, of your, of your brain. Uh, the truth is for me, how I uh, reduce stress uh, is through things uh, like exercising and especially cardio. So it, instead of being still and, and, and listening to my breath and identifying things and sending them on their way, I find that um, through my lifestyle and through cardio and even sitting in a hot tub or swimming or just being in the woods, these are some of the ways that I, uh, that I deal with stress. Okay. All right. So you were 28 when you were diagnosed, you had an episode of, uh, uh, hemolytic anemia, I think in 2003, which you recovered from without any medical intervention. You didn't take steroids, which is the usual treatment for that. 
And I believe that case is the only recorded case of recovery in the medical literature. And there is a, a peer reviewed article on that. But then, and things went, went along well until about 2011, 2012. Tell us about that period of time, and what, what transpired then. Sure, so after the um, acute period around 2003, and I was able to achieve a, a partial remission, meaning that from a systemic standpoint, like through just regular blood draws, the disease was not seen on any of those labs. Uh, if you looked at it from like a subclinical or pathological view of looking in the marrow, there was still active disease, although a fraction of what it was prior to that, you know, period of time. So I was able to get into a partial remission after having that real acute episode, and that would last for about six years. And around 2009, uh, that's when the disease was again seen in the, in the peripheral blood from a systemic uh, standpoint. And, and, uh, and so that certainly was uh, disappointing to, uh, to see that, that evidently, uh, you know, the, the disease emanates in the, from the marrow and now it was back in the bloodstream. And so the disease was kind of on the march. And uh, so you were trying different things uh, at that point, and uh, the disease stayed on the march. The white blood cell count kept going up uh, till around 2011, 2012. Uh, tell us what you were doing and, and what, you, what you believe finally turned things around for you. Well, I had a, you know, just like in other during other periods during my uh, journey, I had to take a close look at everything that I was doing, uh, including, you know, supplementation, diet, et cetera, stress levels. Uh, and I was just working hard to kind of fine tune those things. Um, I did start working with a, uh, someone that I, I knew and was working with professionally and, uh, and, and started working, um, with uh, Keith Block at the uh, Block Center for Integrative Cancer uh, Treatment. And we- So, so for folks who don't know, um, Dr. Block is the head and founder of the uh, integrative, a wonderful integrative medicine and oncology practice in the greater Chicago area. So that's, that's Keith Block. Yes. And he's arguably like a father of integrative oncology, pretty, pretty innovative, this stuff that he was doing, um, you know, for quite a stretch of time at this point. Now, you said you said you were working with him professionally. Are you a physician, Glenn? Are you a medical person? No, I'm not a, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, a physician, uh, but I have an affinity for the area of integrative oncology and do work professionally as as a uh, business development consultant in the integrative health space, which includes uh, integrative oncology. And so I've been very involved with um, organizations such as the Society for Integrative Oncology and consulting to other um, organizations and, and institutions. So this so you're a business is, professional. You're a business yes. professional. You're, you're not a healthcare yeah. professional. You don't have any inside knowledge. No. Of, uh, not not at all. I'm a, I'm a medical layperson. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. 
And so this was an opportunity to, to work with, um, you know, Dr. Block uh, as a patient, you know, um, and to revisit uh, different aspects of, of my lifestyle, as well as uh, really focusing on, uh, on supplementation and with, uh, you know, his approach to uh, looking at the, 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 the trains, looking at various aspects uh, of, uh, you know, various uh, markers and nutrient levels and looking at oxidative stress and inflammation and glucose and circulation, we were able to, um, we, we were able to come up with a, a regimen that was a bit different, quite a bit different than what I was uh, doing. And we stuck with that for a period of time and eventually uh, introduced a higher dosing of a couple agents, including uh, the EGCG, which is from green tea extract. And so it's hard to reduce exactly, you know, what may have correlated with the change, um, you know, the, the changes that came about. Um, and I, I try not to do that. I try not to uh, draw correlations. People often ask me, well, what is the one thing that you believe, you know, had impact? And it's hard for me to speak to that because, you know, there's a inflammatory aspect to CLL and it's really, really important to get quality restorative sleep. Um, and, you know, everything has, has an impact. And so it's important to kind of focus on all aspects of lifestyle and supplements, who knows, may have had less less of a role than more folks would like to attribute to that outcome. All right. So let's go back to stress reduction um, or stress management, at least for a moment. And you have a, a life outside of recovering from this terrible condition. You have uh, a wife. You, you did end up having two wonderful children. Uh, and uh, uh, you have a, a dog, I think. There's a dog in the book, but you have a new dog now. <laughs> I think the dog doesn't make it through the, the entire book, but you did, and, and now you have a new dog, right? <laughs> yes. So um, what does your day look like now? What, how do you take care of yourself, and, and what things do you enjoy in, in life? I know you sure. work, yeah. um, and I know you have a family. Yeah, well, I, I, dog. I, yeah, I still work full-time uh, with my business development consultancy and which is a boutique uh, company. And then I do a lot of uh, cancer coaching professionally. That's about probably 30% of the work that I do that I love. And I've been doing it for the last uh, 18 years. Well, we're uh, going to come back to that. So sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so I, you know, I have, yeah, yeah I, I, I try to really, um, you know, apply a good, uh, life balance, life flow. So I, I tend to work over a long period of my day, but I break it up with periods of exercise uh, and downtime. Uh, and, and so I'm, you know, very active in terms of, uh, you know, fitness and, uh, you know, various hobbies, doing a lot of, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and just trying to live as productively and uh, as, as I can. Okay. Okay. So I know that, uh, during COVID you moved into, uh, your garage as far as your gym 
uh, activities go. Tell us, uh, what have you got in your garage? Sure. Well, not exactly in my garage. It's actually uh, in my home. But when I was... Oh, okay. okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. But when I was, you know, for, I guess, over 25 years, I was a member of a, a gym that's that's nearby and the whole family would go basically every day. Uh, my, my, my children grew up as, as gym rats and so it can continue to this, uh, this day. But at the very beginning of the pandemic, I just fairly immediately uh, quit my gym. And like many, many other folks, uh, began the process uh, because I didn't have weights. I didn't have any uh, you know, equipment in my home. So I had to go on, a, on the hunt for, uh, to cobble together the basics, to, to do a basic gym with some basic flooring and, and various type of, a, of, of equipment. And it was a tough period right at the beginning of the pandemic because I was not the only one with this idea in mind. And the equipment became very hard to find and, and very expensive as well. There's a lot of price gouging going going on, so it took it took months to cobble all that together, used stuff, new stuff, um, and I still haven't returned to my gym, which I I love my gym, and maybe one day, but for now I'm just getting it done inside my home. I remember at one point in the book where you were at your very one of your very sickest points in 2003. I recall that you enjoyed swimming; that was something you could still do, and you pushed it. Tell us a little bit about that period and, and how that uh, swimming affected you. Sure. So as you mentioned, I did have a, uh, they call it Coombs positive hemolytic anemia. So I was quite fatigued and dealing with the, uh, the full force and impact of very active acute kind of leukemic situation. Uh, and for a while there, I was uh, just, laying low, staying home. Uh, and I very quickly kind of got depressed and I, and it wasn't working for me. And even though back then, even, uh, you know, the oncologist would say, Hey, you know, you're not in a good place. You need to just be really careful and take it easy and don't exert yourself. And it may negatively impact your heart, et cetera. I mean, things are quite different today. Um, but I was feeling funky, you know, I was feeling depressed. I was not in nature. I love being outside. I love moving my body. So that's when I said, well, okay, I'm not going to go to my gym, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go to the park and walk. Uh, and I'm also going, it was summertime. So um, I decided to swim as well. So it wasn't real vigorous in terms of the swimming or the walking or the pace or the uh, duration, the distance, but it, I was getting it done what I could. And it totally, um, cleared my mind and was, was super helpful for me. So the, the outdoors, the activity, um, the swimming itself can be for, if you're a, a reasonable swimmer can be very relaxing. Um, and you had access to a pool, so that all worked out and it was the right season. So you could go outdoors yeah. and swim. Yeah, and, yeah. and most most importantly, it 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 gave me an opportunity to regain some control, and so I felt that was very helpful. The movement and being outside in the elements um, during the summertime that was that was a huge positive thing. 
Well, you know, the, the story of your life is about control in, a, in the very best way. So tell us a little bit about coaching and how you bestow that control to other people who might be struggling with a, a condition that might seem very difficult. Sure. I, you know, go through a process in each um, client, just like if I was a physician for each patient is going to be, you know, different. I do get to work with about 40% of my practice are those with various types of, of um, uh, what we call liquid tumors, lymphomas, and a lot of CLL. Um, so blood, blood cancers, you mean? Blood cancers, yeah, and, and a lot of lymphoproliferative disorders uh, in general. And, and uh, I go through a process where I have a pretty comprehensive intake and I get a really good idea of, of where they're at, not just based on, you know, numbers and the types of disease and that sort of thing. What kinds of I, questions do you ask in your intake, for instance, that gives you, give and the questions that give you a deeper insight? Well, I ask about all the different, you know, typical, um, you know, bio information around, um, around age and, and weight and um, where they live in, in the country or if they're, you know, overseas, who, they're, who they've been seen by, what their conditions, their, you know, what, what type of malignant disease perhaps they've been diagnosed with. Uh, of, with um, and what other kind of conditions, et cetera. And then I get an idea of their history of what they've been able to do from a lifestyle standpoint over the course of their, not just be based, not just since diagnosis, but, you know, uh, during their lifetime, you know, have they been eating a certain way? Have they been getting physical exercise? How, how has their sleep been over time? And so I, I try to gain as much information and I even go as far as to look at each of the physicians to look at if there's an academic, you know, get an idea of the specialty, a specialty. And really, by the time I get on the phone with somebody, I really have a sense as to who they are, but I don't stop at that. I, you know, the first thing when I get on the phone, when I get onto a Zoom or a call with somebody is I want to hear from them in their own words and their voice, what their, what their story is, because, you know, often it's the, the emotional aspect and the worrying and often anxiety uh, that has to kind of be addressed to, to help them find solutions to uh, be able to better focus on some of the things that they can do to uh, take control, to help perhaps, uh, you know, improve or strengthen their um, their immune function and resiliency in very basic kind of ways. Sure, sure. So um, what types of uh, conditions do uh, people who want to see you bring to you? Well, it's probably 98% uh, malignant disease, and it's probably about meaning, 40%. Meaning cancer. Is it, are they mostly yes, different types of leukemia patients? That would be um, around 40%. And the balance would be solid tumors uh, at, at all varying uh, stages, including a lot of advanced uh, stage, uh, you know, later stage disease uh, where folks have undergone, you know, 
multiple lines of therapy often. So it yeah. really, it really ranges. Yeah. Yeah. And what kinds of things are you able to do to, to help uh, these patients? Well, on the conventional side, you know, at baseline, I'm able to, because I've already looked at who they're working with. And so I'll get an idea of who they may be working with as a community provider. I take a look and see what their specialty specialty is, if not just general, you know, oncology and hematology, see how they're arrayed it within the community. And then, you know, most often it's rare that I won't encourage someone to get a second, minimally a second opinion, but definitely to become a patient of record with an academic at a NCI, you know, uh, comprehend, designated comprehensive cancer center so that they're followed by an academic who actually kind of eats, lives, breathes from a clinical standpoint and from a scientific standpoint. They're studying the particular disease that the person is hosting. Uh, so I really try to get a handle on who, uh, to whom they're trusting, you know, their conventional care to. And then there's the, the lifestyle aspects, um, you know, and, and I go through, um, you know, listening to the various types of interventions that folks are trying. And as you know, there are certain things that have become quite popular, whether it's IV, you know, vitamin C uh, or intravenous, intravenous uh, turmeric um, or mistletoe therapy and so many different interventions. And you made a, a, a really important point earlier, uh, Dr. Lamont, when you mentioned the importance to, uh, to test, to have some different, you know, the appropriate labs and to look at, you know, various biomarkers that may be specific to, uh, you know, different types of malignant disease so that folks, as they're trying different things, uh, they can have an idea of, of, they can't prove like causation, but they can at least have an, an indication if there may be a correlation to the things that they're doing and then, then having an impact, negative or positive, potentially you know, on the underlying, um, underlying disease. So if folks can, uh, if, if a therapy is generally recognized as safe and if it's accessible and if one can afford it, uh, then that last piece is you need to, to the extent possible, you know, measure what the response may be. So, yeah. So, you know, so you're talking about association and everybody knows that association is not causation and all of that, but, but if there is a dose response relationship, in other words, if you have a good marker and that marker consistently changes with the intervention, you have more evidence of causation. So it's not, uh, you know, an either or situation there either. And uh, I, I really love the fact that you're stressing the uh, you know, the importance of measurement, I don't think that can be stressed enough. If you don't have something to measure and you're trying to impact a, you know, a large complex system, you're not going to make any headway. You, it's like driving with your windshield covered. You, you're not going to get where you're going. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I really think that that's important. And I'm glad you're, you're emphasizing that with your, your uh, coaching practice. So is there anything in 
recent in the last 10 years or so that, you know, everything's gone well for you in this past decade. Anything though that you've learned that you didn't know before in terms of how to even further improve your health over the past 10 years that maybe you didn't know uh, before you wrote this book and all of that? Sure. Well, 32 years ago when I was diagnosed, uh, one thing that I knew early on, and this was before a, a viable internet, and this was me old school going to libraries and buying books and going to, uh, you know, traveling and that sort of thing is that I wasn't going to wait. You know, I was living in the uh, then and that here and now. And, and um, you know, I, it, it, I was not going to wait for there to be, you know, a, a, the literature, the science to, to kind of dictate what I should or should not be doing in terms of the core lifestyle approaches. So everything that I was doing in terms of physical activity and working on sleep and working on a clean, uh, you know, plant strong diet and all these things, uh, it would be, you know, years or decades into the future, you know, into clearly the here and now that we're seeing all this literature uh, come about to support those things that that I was doing just because I didn't really have a choice if I was going to be proactive and trying to have an impact on, on you know, my situation. So I'd say in the last, um, you know, 10 years, um, you know, I, I just see a lot more in the literature that supports the things that I've been doing over the course of time. Uh, I've always kind of uh, looking for, for ways to further clean up my diet, although I don't have much room in that particular area. Uh, I've been doing a lot more um, high impact intensity training, you know, hit, uh, hit, uh, cardio because the early science around HIT is really compelling and even specific to CLL. They've, they've run a small study uh, where HIT for a number of malignant diseases, especially the real lifestyle directed, whether it's col colorectal, prostate, and some breast, we're showing that that is the type of, of, of cardio that's having the most uh, you know, impact. Also intermittent fasting for the last, uh, I guess I'm going on six years uh, of doing intermittent fasting. I wasn't originally doing it for any underlying kind of malignant cancer situation. I was doing it for body composition because, you know, I, I lift weights and I wanted to see, I wanted to experiment that with a little bit. So you're talking six years ago? Yeah, six years ago, but now I'm six years into it. And I never stopped doing it. It's roughly 16, 17 hour fast. Uh, I just love the way it makes me feel, you know, energy wise and from a cognition standpoint, uh, it, it really is something that, uh, you know, that I, that I uh, just love uh, the way. So it what makes time me is your eating window? When do you, when is, when do you break your fast? And, I, I usually, uh, how, how, what's the, the, the late uh, the last meal, when do you end that? Usually I, I don't eat between 7 p.m. And, and noon the next day. Okay. That's the average, but it can go from 16 to 18 hours. You know, I don't feel guilty if it's 15 and a half or, 
you know, whatever, but I do drink tea. I drink a good amount of tea, actually, mostly uh, green tea, uh, turmeric tea and reishi mushroom. And I kind of combine those. And, and so I'm sipping on tea all the way up until I, I break my fast. And I'm also getting the bulk of my exercise in a, fa- in a fasted state as well. And so that's just something that I've been doing for a number of years. And I find that for me to be helpful, uh, you know, for me. Did you, did you find that it improved your body composition? Did you want to improve your body composition and did it, did it help in, in the way that you'd hoped or? Uh, that's, that's a great question. It, it I mean, asked, you look great. You look fit and oh, trim and all of that. Uh, uh, it, but tell us about that. Yeah, it, it absolutely did. I like, I didn't lose any weight for those first, you know, three to six months. It's just kind of the body composition changed. Now, after about six months, there was no impact whatsoever on body composition. All that kind of went away. And I just continued doing it for the reasons that I shared. So it settled into a new stability after about six months in favor of uh, improved body composition. I'd like to think so, but I think it had more impact in uh, early on for body composition. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I think uh, we can open it up to, to our questions. Um, I know that the moderator has some questions and uh, we'll be taking questions from the audience. Hello, and uh, thank you very much. It's a very interesting interview. Um, what you've what you've done, Glenn, is is really uh, um, brave and remarkable. So, um, just real quickly, let me go over um, with the audience about the, the you know um, how they go about the Q and A. Um, so, real quickly, um, we don't take any, um, or actually, just actually before I even get to that, um, where would someone get your your book, Glenn? So it can be found on Amazon.com. All right, great, thank you. And any bookstores. Oh, perfect. Um, and uh, for the audience, um, just a heads up: we don't take any questions directly from chat. We ask that you raise your hand in Zoom. If you're not familiar with how to do that, what you need to do is go to the reactions button, second from the right on the bottom of the Zoom window, and from there you'll click on raise hand. And then I will uh, I will pick on you, and you can um, you can uh, you, you'll tell where you're from and ask your question. And if you're uh, and if you would please just keep your questions brief and, and on topic. So I see that we have uh, one participant who has a question. Um, Janet, where are you from, and what's your question? Hi, my name is Janet. I'm from Chicago and suburbs. And I read your book and I have a close friend that has been diagnosed with CLL and uh, he's in the waste um, watching, you know, type of, he's in his sixties, early sixties fit, but doesn't eat a plant-based diet. So I've been plant-based myself for almost eight years and help coaching people and I was wondering if he could, if we could hear a little more about Glenn's specific diet when he was kind of trying, you know, get getting into remission and also what he continues with. Does he eat any chicken, fish or red meat or dairy products or, you know, occasionally is moderation okay? Or is he pretty strict on, on what he eats, including like oil and salt and sugar and all that? 
So I do want to mention that uh, anyone who's um, interested in specifically what I eat, you can Google Glenn Sabin's anti-cancer um, foods list. And it's a very comprehensive um, piece on that really drills down uh, deep into all this. But what I can share is that my diet has been um, very consistent for many years. Um, I eat a, a plant strong diet that's heavy, heaviest in cruciferous uh, vegetables and berries. Doesn't mean I don't eat my leafy greens or root vegetables or any of that. I do consume a lot of that stuff. Eat a, a great rainbow of colors to get all those different, you know, phytonutrients. And in terms of, uh, well, of course I get a lot of uh, a plant protein, um, but I also do eat uh, some animal protein. Uh, three days a week, I eat fish, cold water fish. So uh, well-sourced cold water fish, uh, salmon, halibut, um, cod, sardines, mackerel. Uh, once a month, I'll treat myself to some well-sourced uh, uh, shrimp or even scallops, always wild. And I do live in Maryland. So a few times a year, uh, you better believe I'm going to be eating some, you know, Maryland blue crabs, but I do very much limit any of that cruciferous, uh, in favor for cold water fish and a really plant strong diet. I don't add any uh, sugar to anything that I, uh, that I eat. I use mostly mujul dates, uh, and other kind of natural fruit-based uh, sweeteners in my food. I don't eat any processed foods. I don't eat anything that's high glycemic, even if that's a, uh, you know, a well-done banana or, uh, you know, a red apple, I kind of stay away from that. And certainly anything that's um, uh, white and processed that, that turns to sugar quickly. So uh, as far as what I drink, it's mostly reverse osmosis water with plenty of lemon, uh, tea, which I mentioned, uh, I'll drink some coconut water from time to time. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's primarily what I drink. Thank you very much. That's very well appreciated. I'll Google your list. Okay. And thank you for uh, reading the book. Yes. You've been an inspiration. And, and Glenn, the diet that you just laid out, um, was that the, what you had been eating while you were going through this process or have you modified your diet since your, your cancer went into remission? Um, you know, since I achieved kind of a, a deep and durable remission, uh, I haven't changed anything, you know, like why would I? So it's not a matter of tempting fate either. It's just a matter of, well, this is how I've been living. This is how I roll. This is how I'm wired. This is how I do it. Uh, so the diet's been very consistent. So if anything, over the last 20 years, it's, it's just going to be cleaner. That means it's just going to be less processed. You know, there's very few boxes of anything, you know, in my uh, pantry. Um, you know, everything is kind of either homemade or, uh, you know, I, I eat as, as low in the food chain as I can. And, uh, and then I add, you know, um, sources of, of, um, of animal protein being, uh, fish. I do have in that, in that, uh, article that I described, 
how I see the various types of animal protein that, you know, range from wild, wild sourced meat, you know, whether that's venison or turkey or, you know, ostrich or um, bison, and then conventional uh, organic, uh, you know, cleaner organic uh, meat, you know, versus conventional meat. And so I think it'd be useful for, for folks to uh, check that out. And um, with regard to the, the animal products, did you add that in intentionally for the sake of health that you were actually like looking to add in additional protein? Um, or did you just, you know, enjoy meat and you want, you limit it, but you wanted to keep that in your diet? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I think that, um, in, in the near future, and there's companies that are, um, in this space now, I think that for each particular malignancy and each particular individual that there's going to be specific diet recommendations that will often maybe not look anything like how I currently eat that's going to be seen as most beneficial for them and against their particular uh, malignancy. But to answer your question more directly, uh, I think that you can get plenty of protein that's veg that's, you know, plant-based. I don't think that it's an absolute necessity if you want to be uh, plant-based and, and not consume any animal protein, you can be fine. I've always loved seafood. I've always loved fish. I thought it was a reasonable, um, way to approach what is probably most closely to a Mediterranean diet, but not, not exactly. Thank you. And how have um, doctors outside of the ones that you were working with responded to your, your recovery? Have they been open to the idea? Are they like reluctant to believe it? Um, do they kind of just say, oh, that's nice and move on? Or are they like, wow, that's really impressive. What did you do? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they believe it because it's pretty well chronicled and it's in the medical literature. Um, you know, so integrative health uh, professionals and especially those in integrative oncology are likely to have more interest. Uh, there's always going to be, you know, the more quote unquote conventional oncologists or hematologists that are going to look at my case and they're going to say, well, he's an outlier or this is an aberration. Uh you know, or this is anecdotal. And candidly, they're, they're not inaccurate because it is an anecdotal case, whether it's in the medical literature or not. However, um, we are heading toward a place where, um, where personalized oncology care is going to be accessible to more folks. And so various N of ones, you know, each, each person hosting a malignant disease will become, you know, a study of one, that it's not gonna be a one size fits all in align with these, you know, standard guidelines. Uh, that's where, you know, this is heading. And then there's interested folks, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a participant in, in a consultant to a study called NEAR. And NEAR stands for Network of Enigmatic Exceptional Responders. As a matter of fact, I've 
personally recruited about 10% of that in of about 95 people. And this is run by uh, Harvard Medical School by the chairman of, of um, bio, medical bioinformatics uh, at, at Harvard. Uh, and what they're doing is they're looking at these, these exceptional responders, folks that have had a remarkable clinical outcome uh, that uh, perhaps they were one out of 25 or one out of 50 people in a study where it was a drug trial, where it was phase one or phase two. And they're one out of 50 people that had a remarkable outcome where, where the balance of the participants the balance of the N all went on to have progressive disease or maybe succumb from their disease. So it's these folks, these, uh, you know, uh, curious investigators that are saying, well, okay, that drug failed, but, but did it for this one person? You know, what was it about this person where they had a remarkable response? Should we just wave that off as, as an aberration, as an anecdote? Or should we try to figure out to the extent possible by looking at back at tissue and, and looking at current, you know, microbiome, et cetera, you know, what was it? What, what, what was it? Was it antibodies? What, what was it perhaps that enabled this person to react so, so uh, positively to that treatment? And Dr. Lamont, I, I know from our previous session, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that you're into you, you know you're into studying um, unique cases like Glenn's. Um, how do you see the future of integrative oncology with regard to the individualized treatment that that Glenn has spoken about? Sure, sure. I want to make clear that I have not made a formal study of uh, remarkable cases. However. Uh, all of oncology, not just integrative oncology, is moving toward looking at each patient as an N of one. And that's been discussed at various oncology conferences. It's not something that's just associated with integrative medicine. And I think that everybody should be considered an N of one. And in fact, because actually you are, if you're being treated for a serious illness such as cancer, you absolutely are participating, it may not be formal, there may not be forms that you've signed, but you are participating in an experiment. Your doctors are waiting and watching and hoping that your treatment, uh, to see if your treatment works. And uh, so every single patient should be thinking of themselves that way, in my opinion. And to do that, you do need to have ways of measuring how well you're doing beyond just getting a scan every few months. That's not often enough to really drive the car down the freeway, you, you really need to know whether an intervention is pushing things in the right direction. And you need to know that early on. Fortunately, there are more and more technologies. They're available today. and I, They're not perfect, but I would not, as Glenn pointed out, you don't want to wait until everything's proved and perfect before you start taking advantage of it. If you have a problem right now, use what's available now even if they're not perfect, circulating tumor DNA, um, uh, other ways of quantifying how well you're doing if your tumor produces a marker. If you have CLL, for instance, or other blood disorders where you can actually watch the blood parameters change with interventions and over time, all of those things will help you 
treat yourself as a single subject experiment, which you actually are. So you might as well do it to the best of your ability. Thank you, doctor. And um, again, to you, doctor, um, you're talking about the importance of, of measuring that, you know, as you're going along, getting feedback. Mm -hmm. um, I know, you know, obviously different cancers are going to require different feedback, I would imagine. But what are some of the, the best tests and ways of measuring um, your progress and, and what's going on in your body um, that you could tell the audience? So you want to work with your oncologist on that to figure out what the best ways to measure are. But you want to make sure that the measurement is fairly frequent. For Glenn, I believe he was measuring it at the height of some of his crises, uh, you know, a couple of times a week, for instance. And so you want to have something that you can measure as close to real time as possible. So you're correct. Every single cancer and every single patient will have different things that can be measured. Old fashioned tumor markers, such as the carcinoembryonic antigen or CEA, the CA125, cancer antigen 125, uh, CA2729 and CA153, which are both really the same protein. Um, those things go in and out of favor as measures of tumor burden and tumor dynamics. However, and, and that's because they're not perfect. So the lab technician can have a bad day. The diluent might be off, the machine might need to be recalibrated. And so the, the measurements, any one measurement is not all that perfect. However, a series of measurement with these, even these old fashioned tumor markers can be by series, I mean, at least three measures uh, uh, in a row can be at least helpful in some cases. As far as imaging, we're getting better and better at imaging, but imaging is expensive. It's uh, often requires insurance prior authorization, which can be cumbersome or not forthcoming. You may not get it. Um, and typically those are, for those reasons, those are, and because of radiation exposure in terms of uh, uh, radiologic studies like CT scans and x-rays, you might only be able to get those every few months. And again, that would not be ideal in terms of being able to tell how quickly or uh, not quickly your tumor is responding to whatever interventions you or your oncologists are applying at that moment. So those, in my opinion, need to, to be re rethought. They, they have their place, but they're not very good for really pushing hard against a cancer. And you, you mentioned that, that um, fortunately, Glenn's tests were very inexpensive. I think $3 to $25 a test, which made it affordable for him to um, have tests done frequently enough that he was able to get the feedback that that made his uh, um, his personal protocol um, perhaps more um, dynamic in trying to treat himself. Um, how much do you think that the costs of these tests prohibit people from having the information necessary to um, be agile in their in their um, in I guess in probably more conventional medicine um, and in their treatment to to um, help them recover? Sure. So I understand that people have different levels of resources that they could draw upon for this. However, I would, you know, just refer people to Quest and to LabCorp and to lab tests online, Google that, and take a look at the price list for the tests that you want. You might be pleasantly surprised. A lot of them are in the double digits, not the triple digits. Uh, some of them are in the low triple digits, but you can see whether you think Putting your resources into in that direction might be appropriate for you. Uh, you know, it depends on how much you have and and how much of that you're willing to to 
invest in your your health and your recovery. So everybody has to make that decision themselves. But I think that some of these tests may be a lot more accessible than people imagine. And so I would encourage people to, to look for those things online and see what they can come up with. I think it's also important to note that in some states in the U.S. that you don't even need a doctor's prescription. You can actually order them direct from a LabCorp or Quest. Thank you. Yeah. For some of these more esoteric tests, uh, there's some companies that will provide these at no charge as long as you provide them with the data that comes from uh, the test itself. Thank you. And um, Glenn, what gave you the confidence to, um, I guess, to reject the conventional cancer therapy and go your own way? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, between, between 1991 and, and 2014-ish, uh, there, there were not a whole lot of uh, good therapies, you know, effective therapies for uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So I um, had that experiment going and it, I, I felt like it was uh, successful uh, for those first uh, dozen years or so before I became acutely sick. And 13 years later, there was only one thing that had changed therapeutically to treat the disease. And that was a monoclonal antibody called rituxan or rituximab, which is, you know, a, a, a very useful monoclonal. They don't use it anymore, but at that point, it was somewhat of a game shifter, if not a game changer. And so I knew that any of the standard of care therapies that I might uh, move forward with were still palliative. And so I wanted to kind of extend the experiment but in a very uh, structured way and with under close supervision and communication with two academic uh, hematologists. So there were certain lines that I drew for myself and that I shared with my hematologists. And if I crossed any of those, as far as uh, the, the numbers uh, on the labs, then I would have had no choice but to have gone ahead and, 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 and gotten the conventional care because, you know, I was very, I was quite ill. I mean, it, you know, I had a, a night sweats, the terrible anemia, a low grade t- temperature, you know, I was quite sick. And so the other point is that a lot of folks that will maybe see my book or read the cover, um, maybe they haven't read the content on my site and, and they will immediately say, maybe this is my guy because, Hey, he refused, he refused standard of care. He he refused chemotherapy. He's an alternative cancer guy. And, and the fact is that, okay, yes, I did refuse conventional care, but there was specific reasons why I went that path. And today, and going back to about 2014, uh, there's been more remarkable um, discovery and more remarkable 
agents, you know, drugs, anti-cancer drugs specific to CLL, whether they're single agents or combination agents that are incredibly targeted, where they're very useful and they are, um, for most people, very well tolerated. And so even though CLL may still be considered incurable for some with these various types of therapeutics and those that are in the pipeline, it may be considered to be functional, a functional cure, and that it very much uh, can keep folks uh, in, a, in a state of remission for, for many years. Not for everybody, but for a lot of folks. So all that to say that if I was sick, as sick today as I was in 2003, I highly likely uh, would have tried uh, one of these agents. Thank you. And um, how did you go about getting started when you decided to, uh, to do your you know, N of one study? Yeah. Well, I was diagnosed with this older person's disease as a fairly young person. And I was told that there was nothing that I could do, period, to impact the course of disease. And I think hearing that uh, was depressing. But the more I thought about that and the more I thought about this whole term of watchful wait, waiting, and I said, well, screw that. I think that I'm going to go with proactive observation instead of watchful waiting. And then I just began this process of learning as much as I could. I figured, well, if, if, I, can, if I can become the healthiest, fittest person that I can, you know, and uh, invest in my health, then how could that hurt, you know, the, how could that negatively impact the, the, the cancer itself that I was hosting. So I think that gave me motivation. That and being young and wanting to have kids and wanting to live was all the motivation I really needed. Okay. And um, has anyone tried to follow your protocol, what you did, and have they had any success? Well, I recommend that people don't try to follow my exact protocol because what worked for me may not work for others. I certainly, you know, through my coaching, I've, I've, I've coached, you know, well over a thousand individuals, you know, hosting CLL. And, you know, over a long, long periods of time, we've tracked how different folks have done. And there's not just one type of CLL. There's very many types. When I was originally diagnosed, there was one type. And, and now there's several types and some have more favorable set of, you know, um, prognosis and some mixed and some less favorable. And even by doing all that, that testing and looking at all those markers, it, it's not a guarantee that any one person's course is going to follow exactly that, you know, prognosis. So, I think that it makes sense to um, to to create a uh, a lifestyle that 
that uh, certainly incorporates a healthy, you know, eating that that incorporates plenty of movement, daily movement uh, that focuses on quality sleep and hydration with with clean, you know, uh, a clean source of, of water. Uh, I think that keeping stress low and, and being aware of environment, both in, inside and outside of your home, these are all things that would apply to anyone uh, for any to hope to become, uh, you know, to, to, to make their bodies less hospitable for a number of, you know, insults and, 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 and conditions that uh, uh, all these various chronic conditions that we have so much of in this, in, in this country. So uh, folks that have followed the basics of my program have become a lot more a lot healthier are probably at a, bo- a better body weight, which may have as much or more impact uh, than any other single, you know, factor keeping as lean as possible. Um, I hope I've answered your question. Uh, yes, you did. And and uh, you mentioned a study that was being conducted that had 95 people in it, I believe. So I guess an N of 95. And they, uh, they are all unique survivors of various cancers following various protocols. But the the example that you gave um, to describe the other patients was more of the kind where they potentially were going through um, like, you know, a test of of medication and everyone else did not react positively to the medication, but they did. Um, Were there, is there anybody else in that study that was more like you who did something naturally, did not use these other cancer treatments um, from conventional medicine and had a positive uh, survival outcome? Sure. Uh, Another great question. Uh, There's a, uh, a combination of types of folks that uh, are participating quite a few that participated in you know, formal clinical trials where, where the, the drugs were considered failures, yet they were incredibly, uh, you know, they reacted in a remarkable way. There's those that were undergoing standard of care uh, and perhaps augmenting that with uh, different types of, you know, interventions that may fit within this integrative oncology umbrella. Uh, and most of the folks that I referred to the study uh, didn't necessarily refuse conventional therapy like I did, but they certainly had a very strong integrative approach that also included uh, conventional care. Now, for my particular enrollment, I was asked to participate uh, in it. And the first thing I said was, wow, this is really cool. Absolutely, I want to be a part of it, but I'm, I'm looking at your criteria, and it looks like I would be excluded, uh, you know, because I kind of did my own thing. I didn't have any, any conventional interventions uh, other than, you know, the splenectomy that, that we talked about uh, earlier. Uh, and they, so they, they went ahead and adjusted the criteria to accept me, which I thought was fabulous. Great. Um, so uh, Dr. Lamont, um, in our, our last interview, if, if my understanding is correct, um, you, these are my words, but you basically said that we really need to be careful about trying to extrapolate any um, any commonality 
um, between the various cases of people who have survived by doing different types of protocols. Is there anything that we can extrapolate or learn from, from what Glenn did um, and what others might be doing out there? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, you know, I, I think uh, all of the things that Glenn mentioned, you know, paying attention to your diet, water, your environment, stress, exercise, all of those things are important for anyone on earth who wants to be healthy, whether or not they have a, a terrible illness or diagnosis. But um, uh, what I really, you know, I helped Glenn write this book. And the reason I did that, there were two reasons. One, I wanted to bring his case, he wanted to bring it to the world. I wanted to especially to bring this case to the attention of other oncologists, because I do think it's really important that we start as a field looking at these outliers, if you want to call them that, and and seeing, you know, trying to learn what we can learn. Um, uh, the second reason was that I really liked Glenn's approach. So whether it was EGCG or curcumin or medicinal mushrooms, that's not as important as the way he did this. So there are many roads to uh, between Los Angeles and New York, for instance. You can get there with, with uh, you know, uh, many different paths. I don't know if that's the case specifically with cancer. I don't really, you know, I don't really want to say that either. But the point is, is that what works for one person may or may not work for you. And so I can actually answer the question that came up a few minutes ago. You know, what happens when someone else with CLL tries Glenn's program? So people come to me having read the peer-reviewed article, which does list a little bit more in detail what exactly Glenn did, at least part of it. And they will have tried that and it will not have, you know, uh, produced the same result that, that Glenn had at all. And the reason for that is Glenn already taught, answered this. That's that every single CLL, I'm going to, you know, he says there's four or five. Every single CLL case is going to be different. When we look deep enough and uh, uh, at the molecular, you know, just as every person is different, every disease in that person is going to be different from every other disease and every other person on earth. So when the treatment doesn't work, there's an old adage in medicine, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who said this, but there's an old adage in medicine. If the treatment doesn't work, the diagnosis was incorrect. So we're at the point in oncology where we're trying to refine our diagnoses. We're very much at the beginning of that. Um, uh, and, and, and so in the next 10, 15, 50 years, we will have much, much better treatments for individual cancers because we will know much more about how to look at these individuals, both the cancer, the disease, and the person and target target those for the benefit of that patient. And everybody will be an N of one. I'd like to unpack that quote. So if the treatment doesn't work, the diagnosis was incorrect. Does that mean that like if somebody try to use Glenn's protocol and it doesn't work, then that, then they didn't have exactly what Glenn had. had exactly. Exactly what Glenn had, the treatment would have worked. Yes. But uh, you know, you have to understand that nobody's going to have exactly what Glenn had. Fair, fair, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, how did you, Glenn, how did you go about engaging the, these doctors at Harvard? Or, so or I in the, in the DC engaging doctors to chronicle what you, what you did basically. Yeah. Well, I live in the DC metro area and early on I was working just with a really terrific, uh, community oncologist, uh, and, 
he had the presence of mind to send me to a CLL expert, which every person hosting CLL should uh, be doing, at least to become a patient of record. Uh, so at the time, you know, that was uh, Lee Nadler, who was on the video uh, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And I worked with him as the academic. And since I was so young, especially, uh, my local uh, hematologist wanted me to be seen by uh, this person. So that began the relationship that continues today, although I don't see him clinically anymore. I don't see any oncologist clinically uh, these days. Um, but that began the, the relationship. And over a period of time, rapport was built, trust was built. Uh, and because I made sure to get seen uh, regularly uh, there within that, uh, you know, at that uh, Harvard affiliated cancer center, uh, they were capturing a lot of data. I was capturing a lot of data that they were not capturing. Uh, so by default, it was captured in that way, just through their EMR. And, and prior to EMRs being a thing, they had ways to capture data. So it was all right there within that system. So, so that relationship was almost accidental as far as being able to collect this information and, and get this done into in a as a study in a in a, in a peer-reviewed journal then. So the case itself, uh, the, the the case itself was um, peer-reviewed, published, and it's indexed. Uh, the the as a patient under the clinical care of you know Lee Nadler and the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, they were capturing data just like they would be for any particular patient. It's really not until this near study that happens to be uh, run through Harvard, uh, you know, that that something is being done more formal in that way, if that makes sense. Okay, you know, absolutely. And how did you keep your motivation up doing something that I'm sure a lot of people must have thought you were crazy to be doing? You know, I, I felt that I was onto something. And it didn't take too much for me to see, um, you know, responses to motivate me to do more. Uh, so, you know, I'm very, you know, I've, I've always been a fairly self-directed person, uh, kind of a forward and leaning person. Some may, uh, you know, call me a, like more of an alpha kind of personality. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, always motivated just because I wanted to have an impact. I, I wanted to prove, uh, you know, my oncologist wrong. You know, my oncologist, my academic oncologists are both in their lower, in their, you know, they're both in their uh, low to mid seventies. They both work long hours. They're both uh, cognitively firing on all cylinders. They take care of their bodies. They do a lot of the stuff that I do they just didn't know that what they were doing, perhaps they should have been maybe teaching their uh, patients that maybe it's not a bad thing. So it wasn't that they were disbelievers in lifestyle approaches, um, but they also didn't feel that anything that I was going to do was going to have an impact. And, and I was wanting to kind of uh, uh, show them that, that perhaps they need to be more curious. That's great. So how much do you think your support network 
um, played a role in this. You know, your wife was in the video that we played earlier on. Um, how key was it to have, you know, so, you know, a primary relationship like your wife supporting you? Did you have other people that were that were helping you and motivating you? Um, I don't know when um, Dr. Lamont got involved with with you, um, if she was in, you know, it was earlier on in the support process. Obviously, you had a doctor who was willing to play play ball with what you wanted to do. How vital was that for you to do what you you needed to do and to keep your motivation up in order to keep on doing it? Well, my wife, Linda, is really the, uh, I think, the star of the book. And so if it wasn't for her, uh, you know, early on, uh, pointing out things that I should be paying attention to, things that I should be reading, things that perhaps I should be doing, uh, then it would be unlikely that I would have gotten so involved personally personally. Uh, and at the level that I have over the course of these many years. So it's been incredibly helpful. It's incredibly helpful to have a strong support system and to have an A-team. Uh, I'm, I'm coining that from uh, Penny Block, from the Block Center. You know, you, it's important you have a great, uh, an academic, especially if you don't have an early onset, more indolent, less troublesome kind of diagnosis. It's important to have a great community, you know, oncologists. It's important to work with folks around diet and lifestyle. There's not one person that's going to be necessarily, you know, it, until we have more, you know, Dr. Don Lamonds and other bona fide, well-certified, uh, you know, integrative oncologists that are also very heavily involved in the, whether you call it the precision or personalized oncology kind of area, then we need teams of people and even to support the emotional aspect. Uh, and so getting in a good place uh, from an emotional kind of standpoint and getting the head in, in, uh, in, in a good place, uh, I mean, that, that allows all this to happen along with you know, really strong support. So I, I realize that not everyone has a partner who's as supportive as my Linda has been over the course of time, but wherever you can find that support, uh, you need to really um, utilize that and, and get away from, you know, some of the more toxic relationships or relationships that uh, aren't adding to uh, the, the positioning uh, to, you know, to do the things that you that you should be doing and paying attention to. So I, I you know, observing Glenn, I, I became involved with Glenn's situation in about 2011 after reading some of his online postings about his condition. And I was not central at all to any of this. I was just a fan of his approach. And one of the things that I you know, really think is, if you take nothing else away from this particular interview with, with Glenn Sabin, it's his approach. He was very much active in setting up a supportive network. He has an extended family and he enlisted their support. He has uh, a lot of friends and business associates. He enlisted their support. He went about his medical uh, searches in a very systematic way. He didn't just fly from one approach to another. He, he studied it before he accepted it. He, any particular approach or mentor or teacher's recommendations, he kept notes. He took uh, his blood tests and kept records. He compared all his bone marrow biopsies uh, and kept up with uh, those on a regular schedule uh, at, at Harvard and Johns Hopkins. Uh, 
So he was very systematic about all of these things, including setting up his support system. And that's what's unusual about, about Glenn Saban is his uh, very systematic and deliberate and successful um, way of managing all parts of his world so that he had a successful outcome in, in the direction that he wanted. Okay. And it sounds like you believe that that like systematic approach was was a huge factor in his ability to pull off something that is most people would consider miraculous. So what I see a lot of is people are frightened and terrified and they jump from one thing to another and combine all sorts of things in kind of a mishmash without actually having a real plan for testing the results of any of their interventions. And it ends up being a big mess and usually they don't get any benefit from it. And I think that's a shame. So I think that the, the take home from, from Glenn Saban is be organized, be relentless, be curious and take notes and measure. So, yeah. And Glenn, and that's, that's a phenomenal point, Dr. Lamont. Glenn, in your book, do you discuss that? You know, because people romanticize someone, you know, if they made a movie about you, it would be about, you know, you found, you know, you found something special and, you know, you found a way to do it, but they wouldn't go and talk about like the meticulousness because it's just not like fun to talk about. Um, do you discuss in your book, uh, you know, and Dr. Lamont, I know you helped write it, um, how important that level of like systematic approach was and how somebody else, if they're going to try to do this, would need to be systematic and maybe what the criteria of that systematic process would be? I think that's very well conveyed in the book. hundred percent. Yeah. Right, that a core takeaway from, uh, from reading it. And last question um, before we, before we conclude this Q and a, where did you get your ideas for how to treat yourself and, and, and build the structure? You know, no one else had, you know, no one else had, you know, the, you know, end of one book to go to, to see how to do it. How did you, um, decide to go about this process? How did you know, you know, you don't have all the expertise that Dr. Lamont has. How did you know that you needed to be systematic? How did you know that you needed to be doing these tests? And where did you get your general idea for the, for the actual protocol that you followed? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of reading, a lot of reading and then finding mentors. Uh, my first couple mentors were um, actually pharmacists that were, uh, also nutritionists. And, and that was uh, core to certain aspects, especially supplementation, but a lot of just a lot of reading. It would, it would be 18 years before I started working with my first integrative medicine physician. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to over time uh, meet a lot of folks and to get a, a lot of uh, professional medical support, but it, but it came many years after, in some cases, the, you know, the diagnosis itself. Great. So it's a different that, world now with access to information and access to uh, people like Dr. Lamont. Well, you know, and actually, so I, I then I, I'm going to uh, go back on what I said about it. That being my last question, one more question. Yes, it is a very different world with the access about information. Also, I'm sure there's plenty of um, changes in regulatory, uh, you know, the regulatory regime that would um, say what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. Would you be able to do what you did and how would trying to do what you did now be different than when, it, when you did it back then? 
I don't think it would be any harder at all. I think if anything, it would be uh, easier if I knew what to do. It was the first many years trying to figure things out where that was the, the hardest part, not that I wasn't tested at different periods along the way. Uh, but I think that there are more providers, more resources, more published papers uh, specific to certain aspects of, you know, kind of how I've approached things for myself. Uh, so I, I just think it's uh, the, the accessibility of information, providers, and interventions uh, is much, much uh, better and much more robust than it was, uh, you know, decades ago. Great. All right. And with that, we, we come to an end. Glenn, I, I'm, it's, it's a really amazing story. Thank you so much, Dr. Lamont. Thank you for helping bring this out uh, to the world and, and for all that you guys, for all that you do. Uh, we can unmute the audience, please. Congratulations.